Okay. Well, I'm glad you all are here. I'm going to preach on the whole book of Corinthians. You think I'm kidding? <laughs> well, you know, there's this saying that says, you know, we're fools fear to tread, or angels fear to tread, fools rush in. You know, that's probably me tonight. Now, I, um, I've been kind of camped there for a while. And there's, it's interesting because when, when I was asked to do this, I, I usually wrestle around for a while. What am I going to say? What text am I going to use? And this time it was just like, no, that's what I'm going to do. So I don't know. It may not be the right thing. But I, um, I want to pull out a theme that runs through. So we're going to go through it pretty quickly. It's not like I'm going to be preaching. <laughs> we're just going to be uh, hoping you can keep up as I go through verse after verse. So at the end, if nothing else, you'll have heard a lot of scripture and that's good, right? Because his word will not return void. Um, one thing I do want to say before we start, though, is uh, the the thing that I want to point out has something to do with what Brian actually mentioned in his message right at the end, um, which I thought was a happy providence that you were dealing with the temple and you were talking about the people of God being that temple in Corinthians, because that's that's where I want to start. But um, the authorized version. Uh, the King James takes the yees and the yous and the these and the thous and keeps them in there. And most people, and I don't think this is probably the case for most of you, but most people think that's there because it's flowery language. It's, you know, it's flowing. It shows reverence or whatever. And, and you'll actually hear people pray sometimes and they'll pray with the these and the thous totally in the wrong way. And you're just like, you know, what are you doing? <laughs> and they think it's because, well, this is, you know, more reverent. I'm doing this because it's more reverent. The fact of the matter is, though, in, when the King James was translated, that had, those, that, those personal pronouns had already fallen out of use. And so the King James translators chose to use those because they showed the singular and the possessive forms of the pronoun. And so when you're reading a King James Bible, if you see ye or you or yours, it's a Y, there's two, right? It's plural. If you see thou or thee or thine, it's singular. And so it's very helpful because the Greek has it, the Hebrew has it, but English, we've lost it. Well, we haven't lost it, right? Because <laughs> what do we say in the South? Y'all. <laughs> and up North, it's you guys, you know? So it's, it's not that we've, we've act, you have to have a plural you. We can't just have one you, we have to have you as well. And so we've adapted our language and I, was, I actually thought it was kind of funny. And looking at this a while back, I found a website that actually has a Bible version called the Y'all version. And it's, it, it actually takes and uses the, the Southern, you know, to, to show you the, and I, I don't know that I would suggest that you do that, but <laughs> it was funny. I just thought, oh, that's interesting. Um, but anyways, Corinthians. Uh, the church in Corinth... You know, it was very gifted. It was one that was knowledgeable. And it, and it even had orthodox beliefs. Um, there are no doctrinal errors that are dealt with in this letter. And I'm talking about 1 Corinthians. Uh, Paul actually commends them in chapter 11, 12, I think it is, for keeping the ordinances that he'd given them. So, if you 
And when we think about Corinthians, we, we think of the sin that was in that church. Um, there was a huge problem in the church in Corinth. Um, sin was rampant. And this letter was written by Paul to call them back. And we may be tempted to think that the, the crowning sin in that book was the, the man who was romantically involved with his mother-in-law, uh, something Paul said, even the Gentiles don't do this. Um, there were those who were involved in prostitution, fornication. They were cheating their brothers financially. They were in lawsuits with each other before the world. There were problems in marriages. There was idolatry. Sin was spreading like a cancer, and it was not being dealt with, and the list was long. Um, but as bad as those things were, and they were bad, I, I don't want to minimize any of those things, I believe that they were only symptoms of a bigger problem. And that problem is what Paul spends the majority of his time unfolding. It was a sin that resulted in the sickness and even the death of many in the church. And Paul's letter uh, was written to show this divided and sinning church a more excellent way. They did not realize the connection that they had shared, uh, the absolute importance of that connection as a body. And it was because of this that all the other sins were present, and it was because of this that they were not dealing with the obvious sins in their midst. Paul labors to lay before them that they are all one body, one temple, that they are all the same, they all share the same spirit, that, they sh that love should have been the mark of such a union. And I think this is the driving argument on which Paul hangs everything he says to them. And really, tonight, I just want to briefly trace out this thought. And um, hopefully, you know, it, 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 I won't just leave you sitting there going, Where, what, what's going on? Um, but it'll be enough to maybe get you to ponder it yourself and dig in yourself and, and try to see more of it. Because I think there's just so much here. So to begin, uh, the first two chapters of the book are spent showing that the state that they were in, uh, that in the state that they were in, their supposed wisdom was indeed foolishness and not the wisdom that is from above, that is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy, but was rather that wisdom that is earthly, sensual, devilish, for where envy and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. He is telling them in these first few chapters that in spite of their giftedness and their knowledge, they are yet carnal and ungodly. It is in chapter 3, as I mentioned, that the thread that I'm wanting to uncover really begins. And it is the text that Brian quoted last Sunday. You see the first statement of this in verse 3. He's just finished telling them that they were carnal. And he says, you are yet carnal, right? Where, whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions. And then in verse 9, he states plainly that ye, all of them together, are God's husbandry. Literally, his garden. <laughs> ye are God's building, his temple. Then he goes on and states it again in a question form in verse 16. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? In other words, we're going to do the southern thing, right? Um, don't y'all know that y'all are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in y'all? It's plural. But then he says something very, 
very sobering. In verse 17, if any man, singular, defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye, plural, are. I believe this statement in verse or chapter 3 is what the rest of the letter works to expound. This statement by itself should have been enough to have awakened them to their danger. Him will God destroy. That, that, that should have just, whoa, that's enough right there. Paul, you've said enough. But he doesn't stop there. In chapter 4, he continues to deal with their puffed up and proud attitude, and he, talk, he asks them, who makes them to differ from another? He sets the apostles and his own example before them. <clears throat> So in, first, in chapter 4, verse 6, he begins, he says, In these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that she might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. For who makes you to differ, thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory? As if, that hadst not, as if thou hadst not received it. Now we are full. Now ye are rich. I'm sorry. Ye are full. Now ye are rich. Ye have reigned as kings without us. And I would to God ye did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God hath set forth us the apostles last, as, <clears throat> as it were appointed to death. <clears throat> For we are made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. But ye are wise in Christ. We are weak, but ye are strong. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place and labor, working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. <coughs> I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. For though ye have ten thousand instructors in Christ, ye have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. <clears throat> it was a loving warning uh, and a call to follow him in love and humility. But it was a warning just the same. Paul is in earnest, and you can hear the urgency in his pleading. My beloved sons, I warn you, do not do this. Do not think this way. There is a better way. He next takes up the famous case in chapter 5 of the man that was openly in sin with his mother-in-law. Um, and he again warns them. And interestingly, he uses bread and the Passover meal to make his point. In chapter 5, verse 6, he starts, he says, Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump. Talking about dough. As ye are unleavened, for even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. They were the bread, and they needed to keep out the leaven of sin. Sin in the body never just affects the sinner. It always spreads like a cancer to corrupt the whole lump of dough. They were not dealing with sin in their midst. 
perhaps it was an attitude like that of Cain. Am I my brother's keeper? You know, where love is lacking, um, there will always be a lack of concern, a lack of care even to know what is really going on in the heart of your brother. And the result is always devastating. How many times have you seen it? I know I have, where a person or a family in a church goes on unchecked in sin of some kind, whether it's gossip or whatever. I mean, you could name just about any sin you wanted to. And it's simply because people don't care enough to stop them. They don't care enough about them. They don't care enough about the church, right? Um, To just pull them aside and lovingly say, brother, sister, what you're doing isn't right. There is much here to consider carefully. And I think this is why church discipline is so important. You know, it is first corrective. That's always the goal. But at last, it is protective. It protects the church from that one who will not turn, from that one who will not repent. But how can we as a body, and this is a thought that I had this afternoon and I was thinking of myself, you know, how can we as a body exercise this if we do not even care enough to get past the niceties of how work went or how the weather is? You know, how many times do we, I was just talking to him about fishing, right? <laughs> but I need to talk to him about his soul, right? And that's, that's the whole point that Paul is, is, is driving at here. It's deeper than this. In chapter 6, he continues to address the sins that were plaguing them. <clears throat> they were taking advantage of one another, and even to the point of needing legal intervention. They were caught up in prostitution and fornication. And here he hits the cord of the oneness of the body again. Toward the end of chapter 6... He does something interesting um, to note. In, in dealing with fornication, he says, I, I, well, let me just say this. I don't think that fornication is the main point here, even though that is what the point is, right? He's dealing with fornication. But he's driving at something that is, I think, being used to show us more of the nature of the union that we have in Christ and the way that we affect one another in that union. Let's read it. Verse 15, he says, Know ye not that your bodies, this is all your individual bodies, right? All That your bodies, your plural bodies, all your bodies, are members, arms, legs, etc., of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. Now, it's pretty simple, right? Two bodies, one body. They're made out of that. It's, it's one. He says, what? No, you not. I'm sorry. I skipped this last verse. What? No, you not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body. For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. So you have two bodies. They become one body, and they share the members. But look at verse 17. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. So in the same, and perhaps I should say, in an even more real way, we are joined in the spirit. Now look at what he does in verse 19. It is a very similar statement to that in verse 15, but the difference is in the personal pronouns. It is important to notice that he does not use the same language that he did before. He does not say, hey, don't you know that your individual bodies are temples of the Holy Ghost? 
That's often how this verse is used. It's just a surface thing. Hey, your body is special, so don't abuse it. Well, that completely misses the point. It's not wrong. (laughs) Of course you should take your body care of your body. I mean, you shouldn't be abusing your body. That's not, nobody's arguing with that. But in verse 19, he says, and, and remember, ye and you are, and you are plural. He says, what? Know ye not that your body? Singular. In verse 15, it was bodies. Here it's singular. Is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. So he's basically saying, hey, don't y'all know that y'all's bodies, or your body, I'm sorry, I did it wrong. Don't you know that y'all's body is the temple of the Holy Ghost that is in y'all, which y'all have of God, and y'all are not (laughs) y'all's. He goes on and he says, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. For ye plural, are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, y'all's singular body, and in your spirit, again, singular. And remember verse 17, he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. He's driving home this point that we are intimately joined together in one body and one spirit. We are one body with many members, and we share one spirit. And because of this union, we have to know that our sins, even our secret sins, affect the body corporate. If the man that goes into the prostitute sins against his own body, how much more does our sin affect those that are joined to us in spirit? Even a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Are we willing to give up our sin? Are we willing to move out of our comfort zone to confront others in sin? The next chapter, seven now, see, we're getting there. We're getting there. Unfold something of the give and give of marriage. Notice I didn't say give and take. Chapter seven, verse four. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Again, another picture of this union and the selfless giving of oneself to another. Is this starting to sound like a theme to you? In chapter 8 and 9, he continues by shifting from the outward blatant sin of the previous chapters to those that are not in and of themselves sinful. To those things, I should say, not sins, but those things that are not in and of themselves sinful, but that can cause harm to the body anyways. Things we would call liberty. The Corinthians were puffed up in their knowledge and were destroying each other in their pride and their selfishness. Their love for their liberties had trumped their love for their brethren. This sounds so much, so much like what we hear today from many about so-called Christian liberty. Uh, The emphasis in these conversations I've had and overheard, it seems to always be on, I can do this whether you think I can or not rather than on, I will not do this if it makes my brother stumble. To this, Paul answers in verse 9, but take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours, he does not say thine here, (laughs) it's yours. The whole church was guilty of it. Become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee, here it is individual, which has knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple, 
Shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish, perish, for whom Christ died. But when ye sin so against the brethren, and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Does this sound like Paul is saying you can do what you want, and anyone that is telling you otherwise is a legalist or a moralist? <laughs> Hardly. But when ye sin so against the brethren, and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Again, this is a sin of the deepest to die. We need to take heed. Our sins against the body, our sins against the head of the body, Christ. I think this is what it means, at least in part, to defile the temple, back in chapter 3. To be guilty of the body and the blood of Christ, chapter 11. He goes on, verse 13, Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Many today will trumpet Paul when he says, All things are lawful for me. But why do they not then follow his example when he says, I will eat no flesh while the world stands, lest I make my brother to offend? And that begs the question, are we willing to give up our liberty to protect the weak? Do we love the brethren enough to say with Paul, I will not do this thing while the world stands, even though I know it is not unlawful for me to do it. Paul's whole point in these chapters is not to say you can do what you want, but just the opposite. He is saying do not do what you want, but rather do what is best for what? To build up the body that you're a part of. If it does not edify your brethren, do not do it. Give up your own way. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it to the glory of God, to the edification of the body, and not to the satisfaction of your flesh. Chapter 10 brings much of what he has been saying about the body to, the, to, to a head. I mean, there's no pun intended. <laughs> uh, and it begins to unfold the significance of the supper and what it really means when he says that they were unworthy of it. And, and really, this, this whole thing for me started there. Asking myself the question years ago, what does this mean to be unworthy at the table? Verse 16 of chapter 10, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? So the table is about communion. That's a shocker, right? We call it communion. But communion with who? Verse 17, For we being many are one bread and one body. For we are all partakers of that one bread. The many made one bread, one body, partaking of that bread together. It's a fellowship within a communion. <laughs> Do you see how tightly wound this is? I mean, it's just, it, it, it makes me want to run over to John 17. I hear the echo of, you know, that they may be one as we are one. In light of all that has gone before, right, the 11th chapter now comes into clear focus. But it's no less sobering. There's an, there is an examination that needs to be done. But it's not what most people think. Let's take a look. It's a very familiar passage, so I'm just going to read it. Starting in verse 20. 
When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, <clears throat> everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have you not houses to eat and drink in? Or despise ye the church of God? And shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation or judgment to himself, not discerning what? The Lord's body. For this cause, this not discerning, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. Paul started by saying in chapter 3 that the one that defiled the temple of God, that God would destroy that one. He has labored all throughout to show that the temple is what it is and how important it is for us to recognize our deep connection in Christ. Stating clearly in the previous chapter, we just read it, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Here, he is saying that it was because of a lack of discernment, a lack of consideration of this very thing that many had been afflicted with sickness and even death because they had failed to examine themselves in this matter. They were unworthy because they were not discerning the body. They were entering into the highest expression of body life, right? The Lord's Supper. I mean, that is, that is the communion of the saints. That is where we come and we, and we recognize we are brothers and sisters. We are, we are one spirit. We are one body. This broken body, we are so united to it that it, we are it. <laughs> they were entering into this, this expression, this highest expression, and without even the thought of the fact that they were joined to Christ and were members one of another. They were the body. They were not acting as though it was anything special at all. And in fact... They were allowing sin and selfishness and uncleanness to dominate that body. They had defiled and despised the body, and they were being judged by God. 
Chapter 3, him shall God destroy. Chapter 11, for this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. There's a connection. In the following chapters, the rest of the book, right, Paul continues on, and I'm not going to go through them all because we don't have time, but he continues the same vein. He, he continues to encourage them to see that they are one body with many members and gifts and working together in the same spirit, and and and. He just, he just continues this. It's like, he, it's like the only thing he's saying, the whole book, you know, is like, you are one body. Get this, you know, get this. Please get this. The apex of the argument comes in chapter 13, right? The love chapter. Where he says to them, yet show I unto you a more excellent way. And then he launches into the most sublime description of what a church of Christ should be here on earth. Really, in heaven too, um, and I'm going to read just part of it. And I'm going to make one last comment in closing. <clears throat> Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and have not charity or love, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love envies not. Love vaunteth not itself. It is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Love never fails. We call it the love chapter. <clears throat> but really, I think this whole book is a love letter. Paul recognized that the real problem in this church was that they were not loving one another. That they were not one spirit and one body but had become a fractured mess of heaving, steaming, selfish individualism. We live in just such a culture. And we would do well to heed his warning. Are we such? Do we need to examine ourselves in this way? Are we more about our liberty and our comfort than we are about loving our brothers? Are we one body, one spirit, are we holy and growing in holiness as a body? Or are we saying, am I my brother's keeper? Paul said to the Corinthians in chapter 10, verse 24, let no man seek his own, but every man another's. And the, it actually says another's wealth, but the wealth is not in the Greek. It just says, let every man, let, every, let no man seek his own, but every man another's. <laughs> I just love that. He lived this. He lived this. And maybe we see it more in the last words he penned in this letter than in any other. Paul ends this book in a way that he ends no other book in the Bible. And it's worth noting. I never noticed it until last week, and it just blew me away when I saw it. So look at the last three verses, and especially the last verse. But he says, If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. We've all heard that. But do you realize that the word for love there is phileo? 
It's phileo. In other words, if, if you don't have like a friendship, <laughs> a friendly you know, relationship, he's, he's lowered the bar way down. He's like, look, if you don't at least love Christ, phileo, right? Let him be anathema, Maranatha. But then he says this, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And usually that's it, we're done. But he says, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. The word love there is agape. Paul is saying to these people, these were his children in the faith, right? His holy father heart was yearning over them. And he's saying to them, I really love you. That's how he ends it, right? He, he never finished. Another, I look, there's no other letter where he says this. Um, and he was saying this to this church. I really love you. And I guess the question I have for us tonight is, can we say the same? Can we say the same? We're going to go to prayer. And let's pray for each other. Let's pray for each other. That we have this kind of love for each other. And that we have this kind of understanding of the body. And I don't know when the table is going to come up again. But the next time we sit at the table, let's look around the room at each other and realize, these are my brothers. That bread was broken. And we're, we've been united together in that. And when we proclaim the Lord's death until he come, we're proclaiming the power of what Christ did to unite us. And that's why the Corinthian church was in such trouble. Because they were not proclaiming that. They were actually proclaiming just the opposite. So, anyways. I'm finished. Brother Richard, would you open this in prayer?